Kochi. I'm so popular, and today I am joined by the most fascinating woman I've ever met, and uh, one of my favorite people to walk the earth for my first ever Christmas special episode. We're discussing Fanny Flags of Redbird Christmas and Funny Girl starring Barbara Streisand. Uh, who are you? Well, hey there. I am the most fortunate woman on the world uh, because uh, you are my son. So <laughs> I am your mom. Um, my name is Carly, and I am speaking to you from the lovely community of Sisters, Oregon. <laughs> Hi, Mom. Um, <laughs> what, what are you doing? Well, tonight I am sitting in front of a roaring and crackling fire, which is fabulous. It's very cold out, but no snow. And I am surrounded by piles of wrapping paper and envelope and tapes of many sizes, uh, getting out the last of the holiday gifts I'm sending out. So um, I am sitting in the middle of what looks like uh, the back room in Macy's at the moment. Wonderful. Um, and I usually ask people, why are we friends? Or why do you follow me? Um, I guess I'll just ask it anyway. Why are we friends, Mom? <laughs> because you are one of the smartest, funniest, kindest, most interesting people I've ever had the great pleasure of meeting. Thank you, Mom. I'm very flattered. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I thought it would be fun. Um, you know, we haven't spent Christmas together in, I guess, actually, in three years. Because we... We did Christmas here in Japan when you came to visit, but that was uh, like the 26th or something, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I left here on the on Christmas Day and I arrived in Japan uh, the day after Christmas. Yeah, so we haven't had Christmas together in, in quite a while, but um, nonetheless, Christmas is uh, always a, a special time to be in touch with the people you love. So I thought it would be fun to have you on the show to talk about um, these two uh, pieces of media. Uh, which one of them isn't a Christmas film at all, but um, the spirit of the holiday is just um, enjoying people's company. And um, I, I would love to do that over a funny girl, so I couldn't help myself. <laughs> well, and and uh, both, uh, we're, we're talking about a book and a movie that both feature women named Fanny. That's right. Yeah, so a very Fanny Christmas. Um, <laughs> very Fanny Christmas, which could mean a lot of different things when you go clubbing. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, um... I, people might be surprised to hear, but actually, I think that um, they'd be surprised to find out that we're really quite a Christmasly, Christmassy family, aren't we? We really are. We we managed to meld uh, my German traditional Christmas with your dad's uh, traditional American Christmas day, and uh, and we always loved having a lot of lights out, and your dad would take all the plastic snowmen and all that and do the outside and uh and even if nobody else in the neighborhood did we did and the more we did it the more other people did it so yeah we are we have always had great fun for all the holidays but a lot of that was i was gifted with being able to be a stay-at-home mom a lot of the time that you were growing up and so there was time for lots of decorating and and celebrating and i cherish that yeah absolutely um we've uh cut down trees from the forest for our christmas tree most years um i remember one year we made cookies and gave them out in the neighborhood yeah a couple years i dragged you up and down the road in a little red wagon handing out cookie plates 
Yeah, I was just thinking about that earlier today because I also remember when um, Freckles was missing for, you know, four days or so. Oh, my God. Yeah, and I remember, it. Was, I think it was in winter, and we had to go uh, put um, the <laughs> put up the the signs everywhere, and I saw, like, five missing cat signs today, and I thought about that and giving out cookies to the neighbors as well. Yep, and my Christmas present was he came home. Yep. I think he came home, like, on Christmas Eve. I think so. He was my soul kitty, and I still miss him. Yep. Um, lots of uh, absences of pets lately. Yeah, it's a uh, winter's a, a rough time for animals crossing the bridge, but it seems like fall, late fall and early winter are the times that their energy runs out and they cross the bridge. Yeah. I also I I think people don't know quite like the how rural our home is as well. It really is like the middle of the forest. Yeah, we we actually are. We live on 3 acres on a dirt road. And the highway is a half mile from the house. Yeah. So it, when it snows and uh, <laughs> it's dark December, it really, it really does feel, uh, it feels like the Christmas spirit or whatever. Yeah. And that's why the last couple of years we have, we have no snow. We, we've had a dusting once and uh, Crescent and Lapine down south, they've got a foot or more, but Sisters Bend, Redmond, we're just dry as a bone. It's just not not pretty, and um, I miss being able to step out my back door and go cross-country skiing because most years had skis out the back door, and I just click into them and grab a cup of coffee and go ski the neighborhood for half an hour in the morning. And um, Yeah, I got to do that twice last year and so far this year there's nothing if i want to ski i got to go up in the mountains and that's a nuisance yeah um i i think that tokyo has a not any christmas spirit at all <laughs> i mean there there's um the church that's next to my apartment I put up a, a big tree next to their cross um and i've seen like some like lights and stuff around but uh i definitely do miss the the cozy feeling back home even when it wasn't snow or it was just you know sloshy like gunk on the ground uh, it's still winter so, yeah yeah Winter in, in Central Oregon is definitely something special. What kind of church is next to you? Do you know what denomination it is? I think it's just like a Protestant, you know, thing. Hmm, interesting. I haven't really looked into it. Um, you can see the cross when I'm like walking home. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I love, oh, okay. I love crosses. We're Christian, so we got that. <laughs> No, I, I love to have a cross. I, I, I always find it, like, uh, dramatic to see, like, a big electric cross somewhere, and I've missed them in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, special to really celebrate, um, you know, holidays. And people have a lot of, I think lately especially, people are trying to imagine that it's a, a chore to go home for the holidays or, you know, making up a big deal about fighting with their family about politics or whatever. Um, and, and it really bums me out to see, like, my some of my friends from college doing that kind of stuff, too, because I really do miss Christmas at home. And when I first got to Japan, I was like, oh, like, I'll just spend my two years here and I'll come back. Um, and then when COVID hit and I wasn't able to come back, I was, like, kicking myself in the in the head for it. Yeah, I just ran across um, 
picture the other day, um, you actually cut the Christmas tree down one year. Did I? Yep. Dad got the chainsaw going and, and then you guys did a little with the chainsaw and then he gave you the axe and you finished, you cut the tree down that year. I don't remember that at all. And we have these amazing photos of being out in the snow with uh, a procession of dogs. Uh, we never took Hagrid or Dharma out the Tibetan Mastiffs we had, but uh, Bella and Lucy and Buddy were all part of the Christmas tree drive and hunt. And uh, and there's some just some of my favorite pictures are of us out in the woods cutting the tree down. Yeah, I I, uh, I also remember um, one year when we still had the Jeep, that car, oh which God. I haven't thought about in, in ages, um, when you had that, like, uh, caroling <laughs> CD in the in the sound system, and then the Jeep got, like, stuck in the road. Yep. Yep, we had a, <clears throat> excuse me, a terrible CD sing-along. Uh, it was in, like, all the wrong keys for any normal human to sing, and they were strange keys, and... The rhythms were weird. It was like the worst sing-along you could ever imagine. But it came with a book. It was spiral-bound. It had all the words. It was just ghastly. And we just laughed about it. And then the Jeep got stuck in the snow. And that was fun, too, for a couple hours. (laughs) (laughs) You sent me a whole bunch of pictures um, earlier in the year, like copies that you had. um, And a few of those are pretty good. There's uh, some of me in in that... uh, in a Santa hat, like wearing uh, the Christmas sweater. There's a few of those. And then there's a, a, a really good one of actually Freckles and Thelma out in the snow. Oh my gosh, I, I can't remember that one offhand. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a picture of the picture and send it to you. <laughs> but yeah, it was funny. I've been shuffling through those uh, the last few days. But um, yeah, I'm just happy to have my mom on the show for the first time. <laughs> Um, and uh, just, you know, celebrate and enjoy each other's company to the to the best of our ability when we have a whole ocean in between us. Yep, this is a, this is a Christmas present to me, and I cherish it. <laughs> That's very sweet, Mom. By the way, um, how much of the podcast have you listened to? Um, I've probably listened to about a third of them all the way through. Oh, and, my God. And then I've dabbled in some, and... Um, so probably about three quarters of them I have some, uh, had listened to some of. That is terrifying. <laughs> well, just think, you've got your podcast, but there's actually out in the craft house, which is my little building that has many craft supplies, there are two cardboard boxes that have about 100 layers of duct tape around them. And there's big signs on them that say only open if you're brave or only open if we're both, if my, if your dad and I are both dead or think about this before you open it. Cause I can't quite bring myself to burn them, but I'm not sure you should see them. The diaries. Yes. See, and this, I want, I'm looking forward to when those open because um, I will finally be able to find out like what year you were on those soap operas so I can find the episode. <laughs> it's true. I still can't find them. What show was it again? General Hospital. Oh, right. You're on General Hospital. Yeah, I um, all, I was wearing the Pee Wee's Big Top uh, jacket oh, last night as well. Oh, jacket. 
Yeah, which was one of the best things you ever gave me, and I wear it all the time. Oh, I'm delighted. Yeah, it gets it. It gets its use in for sure. Oh, I'm glad it should. <laughs> um, and then I think we you know one of the the really special things we did for Christmas was every year um, we listened to together to one of the books we're talking about, a Redbird Christmas by Fanny Flagg, uh, together on um on audiobook in the car. Now, this book was published in 2004, and Fanny Flagg is kind of known for stuff like fried green tomatoes and whatnot, but I, I don't know the story of how you came across this book, Mom. Uh, well, um, I always collect books, as well you know. So uh, I had read Fried Green Tomatoes at the Whistle Stop Cafe, well, I'd seen the movie first. That's one of the rare times I'd seen the movie and didn't know that it was a book. And then I read the book and I knew Fanny Flagg is an actress, but she actually started writing some, quite some time after her acting career. She started writing not all that long ago. And I just had caught when, I think it was on NPR. I think on NPR, they interviewed Fanny Flagg and she talked about her book, Redbird Christmas. And I think it was the year it was published. And she was on NPR and I was like, I love her as an actress. And I was like, oh, good, a new Christmas book. And look, it's not huge because so many of the Christmas books have been big. And you want to read a bunch of them at Christmas. I like to start reading Christmas books like the day after Thanksgiving. And um, I had I heard her talk about it. And so I just uh, was so excited about it and I heard that she was reading her own book and the library had it on CD. So that was it. That was it. We popped it in and you and I within the first few minutes were just enchanted. Yeah, absolutely. I I recall very specifically like a lot of the like sensory details and like smaller like um uh, sort of like a sensual memories of just like hearing like parts of it um listening to it with you in the car and we listen to a lot of audiobooks together and the the other one i remember really clearly is a, um a john updike novel uh it twisted something it's about the writer twisted river john irving a uh, john irving not john updike <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, that one, and then uh, Alice Hoffman, uh, we listened to, I think, Skylights, was it called? Uh, I think Red Sky? I don't remember the name of it, but the it was Red like a, a... I think it was Red It was about a, like an affair, and I remember being very scandalized and fascinated <laughs> by like the tragic, like bleak tone of that. Um, so those two, and then Redbird Christmas were ones that I remember most like listening to in the car, and... Um, this is really just the most enchanting novel. You were so right when you when you said we were just bewitched by it. Um, and it follows a uh, older divorced gentleman from Chicago who um, is advised by his doctor to uh, take the winter season in the Alabama community of Lost River, where we're kind of just wrapped up into the most uh, enchanting, like sweetest world I, I've read in recent memory. Well, the thing that's so enchanting about it is, you know, I've heard people call it kind of like, oh, it's like a Hallmark movie book or it's this or that. But actually, um, I just, I, I like to reread it every year. Some years I listen to it on audiobook. Most years I do. Um, but it was just so much fun to like hold the book and read it again. 
<clears throat> and the, there's not a word wrong. I mean, it's beautifully written. It's kind and there's nothing syrupy about it. There's some, you know, there's some issues that are brought up in it, but um, it just delights me to no end to hear her read it and to reread it. I just, it's one of my favorite parts about Christmas now, and it has been since you and I listened to it that first year. Yeah, and I, when I was, uh, you know, rereading this myself this week, I could not believe that this was published in 2004. I know. It seems like it should have been older. I, it, I was surprised to see that, too. I was like, What? I know because it it is so like sweet and like you said every word of it is so kind and there's no irony it's not cruel or sarcastic or satirical about any of its characters it's just written with like such warmth and friendliness that it really feels like it's from a different era like it feels very 80s to me in that way yeah it just in a I would take it even further back I mean it was interesting to um, hear um, just poking around about Fanny Flagg and refreshing my memory. And <clears throat> on one of her interviews, they asked her, well, you know, what's one of your favorite Christmas books? And she said, Truman Capote's Christmas Memories, which I haven't read. So I popped on the library website and it's waiting for me at the sister's library. I'll pick it up this week. Because uh, it's oh, one of her favorite books, and and um, always looking for new, fun stuff to read about the holidays. So, uh, pretty darn excited to to read a book that she thinks so much of. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I keep thinking about really this book is just the the sweetest, warmest thing I've ever read. And like when I was reading Scruples early earlier this year, I think that's why I kind of imagined this to be like almost like late 70s, early 80s in, in, in its tone, because that book also has um a complete like lack of ironic sheen. And it's very rare for to see anything produced that doesn't have like kind of that like smirking tone to it. And Christmas is a, a sort of something that is transcends irony, like you can't be ironic or sarcastic or, um you know, rude about Christmas in that way to really get it you have to open your heart completely to it so just uh sinking into this book and um not having any sort of cruelty in it and just uh existing in this like warm sweet world even when there is you know trouble or hardship in it it's just the most affirming thing I've done in ages well and I just think it's so wonderful like you said there's there's no irony there's no snark there's <clears throat> there's nothing hidden behind the curtain uh, nobody's shadow puppying, you know, puppeting behind, flipping anybody off. It's just this wonderful, warm, human story. Absolutely. And, and, and the I characters are all... Go ahead, Mom, sorry. No, I said I, I love what you said about the irony. There is a complete lack of irony. And, and part of my favorite thing about that book, about this book, is that but it also occurs to me that that is why I love her books and I have read everything she's written, but then I'm a little OCD that way <laughs> for your audience in case they don't know. Um, <laughs> if I start a series or I find an author I love, I tend to read absolutely everything they've written. And if it's a series, the book has to be really bad to throw me off the track to not continue <laughs> until I've read all 
17 in a series. I think I read three series this, this year that all had like 15 to 17 books in them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've definitely installed in me like the completionist thing. And now I have to also read everything in a series. It takes me longer and I can't focus uh, to read it all at once usually. But no, I because of you, I also am uh, deeply obsessed with... Uh, <laughs> reading things uh massive pieces of uh literature that are like thousands of pages long by the end of the project yeah i don't even want to do the math on how many pages of outlander i've read because i am three quarters of the way through the newest one and the library wants it back soon so <laughs> no and i mean all of that that really just touches on like the importance of uh earnesty and and being sweet and i Myself, like, uh, quite often end up fleeing to extreme, you know, grading art that is supposed to make you feel bad. Like, when I went to go see, like, Irreversible in the theater a few weeks ago, I was like, oh, this is the best. Like, I, I love that kind of emotion. But it is so wonderful to just uh, step into this uh, universe where there's not one degree of, of irony whatsoever. And the characters in this book are so alive I don't know how she does it, but um, every character just feels like somebody that I want to like spend the rest of my life with. Mm -hmm. And there's not a weak character. It is so balanced across the board um, in this book. And, and, you know, there's always minor characters and things, but here there really isn't. It's like everybody is equally important. I mean, ostensibly the, the story is about Oswald T. Campbell, but it's also about Mrs. Cleverton and uh, Roy and uh, Julian LaPond. And how much happens in this little teeny book? Yeah, the pace of it is incredible. Every chapter, just so much stuff happens and it keeps barreling forward with um, new plot threads and developments. And um, it never feel it still feels like so leisurely and relaxed because of this like warm, glowing Alabama setting and like the communal friendliness between everybody that no matter like what, you know, rate at which things happen, which is, you know, quite often. Uh, it, it feels uh, so leisurely and just like water flowing in the river. Exactly. I think that's that's exactly where I was headed with that too. <clears throat> Excuse me, is that the the book very much feels like floating in a flat flat bottomed boat on a quiet river. I mean, there's this that that one great line and I don't even remember what it was associated with, but she says, and the river just kept quiet and let them do it. Oh, it's so perfect. Yeah, I um, I love the the small accessory like, details of uh, specifically like the book of bird watching that he gets into, like that Oswald starts reading, and it, all of the the small like little pieces there are just so wonderful that they like embedded in my memory when we read this together um for the when we were listening to it on audiobook and i still think of things like uh the little red bird jack who uh, yeah. bites into the i think about the detail of him like biting into the tomatoes and like the dr pepper hat like <laughs> all the time like these just like keep flashing up to me in my unconscious I have such a clear picture in my head of what Patsy looks like in her hat. Yeah, the little girl who uh, was uh, left on her uh, left on the 
left to the family in the woods in the trailer and then slowly becomes like a part of the community um, through her friendship with this little bird. And the kindness of Roy who runs the, the store. And I mean, I love it. You know, the first sign he puts up is don't let the bird out. And then Henry the cat gets in and tries to eat Jack and Jack manages to get up on the head of, I think, a, a deer or a fish, something, one of the mounted taxidermist pieces. And then, so then there was a sign on the door, don't let the bird out, don't let the cat in. <laughs> <laughs> I that I think that thing takes up a whole chapter of the book as well as just like describing the incident of uh, letting, letting the cat in and yes. whatnot, but. Henry the cat trying to eat Jack the bird. Yeah, I don't know what it what it is, but this really just does have that magical quality where every little episode here just uh, warms my heart. I love that for the uh, Valentine's Day sweetheart dinner, all of the <laughs> single women invite Oswald, not because they all want to date him, but because they all fear that no one else will ask him. Yeah, I just find the the whole thing so so sweet, and I think it's important and and essential to. Um, allow yourself, especially around the holidays, to just uh, earnestly enjoy something without making it complicated, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And and But there's just such wonderful little details, and she's not smug about them. She's not smug about her writing. There's no, like, super, oh, look at me, didn't I just write an amazing sentence? Um but the writing is beautiful. It's it's kind, but it's not sappy. I didn't. I don't find this to be a sugary, sappy book. I find it charming. Is about as far in that direction as I'd go. It's just kind, but it's a fascinating story. It's no, I think so too. You know, he his and and i love that when he finally is told he's he's not sick anymore it's the third generation of that doctor's family so the first one had the had the brochure and knew the people down there in lost river and then his son remembers seeing the brochure when he took over his father's practice and then when he goes back that doctor had died and it's the third generation that says, well, you're, you're doing much better. And by the way, you, you no longer qualify for medical disability. <laughs> <laughs> you're so right that this isn't, um, the writing is perfect and beautiful. And um, it doesn't have any of like the MFA syndrome of people trying to craft, you know, something so uh, impressive and literary. Um, and because of that, it actually becomes, I think, more artistic in, in a more fascinating way. Um, in that, I, I wouldn't even call it it's simple, but just like the very stark and upfront kind of a way that Fanny Flagg writes this, it just, uh, it's so inviting and it, it really creates like a whole tone while you're reading it that is, uh, unmatched by anything else I've read almost in anything else this year. Well, the, that's, to me, is that, now that's, when you can have a book move you so much by the story, but of course, by how the story is presented without any big fireworks or fancy shebangs and no twisted metaphors and analogies and oh, look at me, wasn't that a clever turn of phrase? It's just so honest. And <clears throat> you being a writer know this even more than, than me who doesn't write as much as I used to by a long shot. 
it's much harder to be clean and clear and gentle and bring power across than it is to have big fireworks and lots of you know words to look up and sentences that go on and on and dense paragraphs and she just has a story to tell you and to be able to do that and to have a book that you who read at such a high level and and of so many cross currents of what you read to be able to still respect a piece of art that has touched your heart uh, that if you put side by side with some of the literary tomes you read it stands on its own happy little feet yeah i mean that is perfectly said mom and kind of like the the mission of my show in general is that like of course like i like uh you know, impossible to read tomes that they like, take you like seven years to get through. Like, yes. yeah, I'm, I'm I'm quite happy. Like, uh, you know, reading you know, Khan, Kristeva, and whatever, and have deeply enjoyed that this year as well. But um, it's important when you're thinking of culture to respect both, you know, quote high unquote and low culture, mm-hmm. as it were, um, with the same seriousness because they both, um, they both create impressions of humanity that are just as essential as the other. And I think especially around the holidays when everyone tries to, you know, complicate things, it's especially touching to just um, enjoy something simply and without uh, over overthinking or over-argumentation and just accept the um, artfulness and joy of uh, the human experience and uh, sharing it with people you love. Well, I have to say, I think it was, was it one of the Christmases you were home from college? It must have been. Um, but you had asked that year for your own copy of Redbird Christmas. And I have to tell you that when you asked for that for Christmas was one of my favorite Christmas things ever. To know that something we had shared together meant enough to you that years later you still wanted to have that book be a piece of your your Christmas and and so of course being your mom I found a signed first edition and then I found a craft made red bird (laughs) but that was one of those things that that just links our lives together that there's this wonderful piece of literature um, that is gentle and sweet, uh, that we can continue to have touch our heart, and that that was something you and I shared, that it wasn't a one-off. It's been a part of our lives now, probably since it was probably the year after it was written. I mean, we probably listened to it in like 2005, 2006, maybe seven at the latest. Yeah. I think that sounds about right. I, th- I think it must have been around that. I think probably 2005. I, I can't imagine it was much later than that. But I mean, it's a book that has, he talks about being an alcoholic, uh, somebody whose heart was broken, uh, somebody, two guys who hate each other over a girl, a crippled kid, um, white trailer trash living in the wood. I mean, and it's what? what it's under 200 pages. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I was thinking the same thing. Um, and especially when it comes to like his alcoholism and everything, I, 
it's really beautiful the way that she fashions it not into this like a long dark night of the soul but um having these like slip-ups and problems in your in your character um make you all the more human and uh enjoyable to spend time with on the page really and then it's not like his his one when he literally fell off the wagon it wasn't like they spent the next two chapters talking about it and how he was going to fix it he just woke up and went well i'm never doing that again and it wasn't like it it didn't have to go anywhere it just it was what it was yeah absolutely it was what it was but i have to say no because i'm a, a huge music fan and and i i tend to listen to a lot of stuff and <clears throat> being a member of a musical community um everybody makes accordion jokes right <clears throat> which is really <laughs> right it, it's because probably it's so much of its association to most americans is that the accordion is only used for polka um when in fact it's one of the hardest instruments to play you're playing a squeeze box a keyboard and um finger uh buttons at the same time it's an incredibly hard instrument but um you know there's there's tons of accordion jokes like uh if you threw an accordion and a lawyer into the river who would you save and the answer was why bother kind of thing but <clears throat> i had to laugh that the, one of the funniest things to me is that he he you know gets a friend to take him to another town so he can go to an aa meeting and he gets there and it's the American Accordion Association, not alcoholics. <laughs> and there's this great line. <clears throat> she says, Oswald thought about it and wondered which was worse, being an accordion player or being an alcoholic. He figured it was a toss-up. <laughs> him so he'll never know all my life is just despair but I don't care when he takes me in his arms the world is bright all right what's the difference if i say i'll go away when i know i'll come back on my knees someday for whatever my man is, I am his forever more. Oh, my man, I love him so. He'll never know. All my life is just a spare, but I don't care when he takes me.
Funny Girl is a 1968 film directed by William Wyler, starring Barbara Streisand and Omar Sharif, uh, adapted from the Broadway musical, also starring Babs herself. Um, And mom, this was your your favorite movie ever, right? Um, Funny Girl and Casablanca stand shoulder to shoulder. Now, what is your story with Funny Girl? So, um, Funny Girl... I had seen the previews in black and white on TV uh, when I was a kid and something about it just captivated me. I thought Streisand was mesmerizing and the idea of wanting to be an actor that badly uh, resonated with me. And it was the very first movie I went to by myself without anyone else with me, no mom, no, no nobody. I went to by myself <clears throat> and I bought my own ticket and got to see it on a big screen. I must have been, when did it come out? You said 60, what? 68. 68, I was 10 years old, nine. I was nine. Wow. Yep. And I went and that was it. I was just everything about it. And I watched it again last night. Um, I watch it probably a couple times a year. There is not a frame wrong in that picture. It just, everything about it. I just love that. I love Funny Girls so much. And uh, when I started getting into record collecting in high school, um, you had the the worn out Funny Girl vinyl that uh, I was too afraid to play because I didn't want to do anything to it. It was so it was so well loved that I was terrified to to touch it in any way. Yep, thrashed beyond thrashed. I that the fact that it even exists without having been worn through both sides is a miracle. A test. Yeah, because I must have gone with you to college and everything too. Oh yeah. Yeah. So you saw this back in 1968, which is impossible to imagine for me. And um, <laughs> I, I think I recall that didn't like you, didn't Oma like have like some like sort of a problem with you seeing this movie or something? Yeah, I don't know what mom's issue was, but she hated Barbara Streisand. And, <laughs> really? And how, I mean, how could you hate her? She, it was her first movie. But I think even just like the trailers, my mom thought she was kind of full of herself and she thought she was ugly. And ah. it bothered her that that girl thinks she's so pretty. And <laughs> I'm not sure where that came from, but um, yeah, my mom always hated Barbara Streisand. That is so funny too, because Oma is, is Jewish, isn't she? Um, no, actually the Jewish part of our family came from here grandfather's side which is scary oh my god i had i've had this wrong the whole time yeah i thought it was her no she she wanted to marry a jewish boy and her mother wouldn't let her oh look at me i've had my cultural history wrong for our family (laughs) wrong this whole time i think i've talked about this multiple times on the show (laughs) 
Yeah, no, the, the part of our family that was Jewish um, was a small fraction of your grandfather's family. They were uh, cattle brokers and they were wiped out in the Holocaust. So that was the end of our blood linkage to our Jewish heritage. Um, yeah. Because Opa was Catholic. Yep, he was a Catholic Nazi. Yep. <laughs> yeah. See, I always thought that Oma was Jewish. Well, see, technically, the bloodline for being a Jew comes through the maternal line. So technically, because it didn't come from my mother, technically, we don't have claims to be <gasps> Jewish. But some reform synagogues, uh, well, most of them don't care. If you want to be a Jew, you are a Jew. But in terms of lineage... Reformed Judaism now accepts maternal or paternal lineage. It used to just be maternal. Oh my goodness, I've been so wrong this entire time. Well, <laughs> I, I think that one of the funny things about um, Barbara Streisand is that in 1968, she was so Jewish. Like, she was like a, a creature from beyond the earth and her complete um, embracement of her own heritage and her image and one of the most magical parts of this movie is that she seems like no other woman to have ever walked the earth and I think part of that is because of uh both like her you know position in, in the cultural sphere as like the the eternal Jewish woman but I think n people hadn't seen anything like that up until her no they'd seen it on vaudeville stages they'd seen it in some they'd seen it in I mean there's a what did they used to call it? It wasn't the, was it the matzah circuit? There was a, an actual Jewish vaudeville circuit that the Jewish performers would do. Uh, just like there were, were vaudevillian uh, circuits that, you know, certain other elements would work. But yeah, the, the Jews had their, their very own um, Jewish circuit of vaudevillian performers, and, and that's where, where some of that would have come from. But before Streisand made the movie, she would go to an open mic and do kind of this same thing long before she was cast as Fanny Bryce, where she would use that magnificent voice of hers and then that amazing comedic timing and play them off each other. Right. And from this moment on, she was just such a fixture. And it's really breathtaking to imagine, like, every single person in America having, like, multiple records of hers. Like, mm -hmm. she was just such a asteroid. Um, and it's impossible to imagine now, like, anyone being capable of capturing, like, the cultural fascination in, in such a way. Especially with her being so unique and idiosyncratic in... Uh, both like her really like Jewish presentation and um, her extremely specific like characterization of herself. I am just, my breath is taken away imagining the entire country just uh, loaded up with records of this woman. I mean, she's got, you know, the pipes, the, a, a one in a lifetime, one in a million. But the thing that's crazy is this was her first movie. Yep. This was her first movie. Ah. And when she, when she exists in this movie, um, it is like the most incredible like synthesis of 
um, both like taking the parts of her own personality and parts of the role and fusing them into something that's like not even like a performance. It, it's really transcendental to watch her just move about this movie. And to see, I mean, it's great to be able to own it and be able to watch it on a smaller screen. Um, but I, I plan on now that we've revisited it again, I'm, I think I'm going to check it to our local movie theater. You can actually rent the theater and they'll show a movie. And I think I would love to see Funny Girl on a bigger screen again. Have you seen it in a theater since you first saw it in 68? Um, when I lived in Portland, when I was going to college, there were a few retro houses that would have, you know, themes. So they do horror, they do this. And there was, there were themes that when they did musicals, Funny Girl was usually on the lineup and I always went. Oh, I would die to see this in a theater. Um, the tugboat the, scene, you think it's great when you see it, but when you see it on a big screen that just the hairs on every part of my body stand up. Absolutely. I mean, what is so special about this is um, there there really is a, a special quality to this movie. Like the, it, I don't I don't know how to describe it. it it's bewitching almost. Just yes. like watching Barbara <laughs> Streisand like move through this movie and her like the strength of her performance um with the context of this uh sweeping romance plus like her sheer willpower and determination to um create herself as she sees herself in the public eye as this as an actress is i i don't know how to describe it it feels like almost like biblical in some ways well there's not a not a thing wrong with the movie some critics have said the second half is weak but i mean the cinematography every i mean she is so beautiful and she is anyway but the cinematography oh it just oozes how beautiful it is the costumes i have dreamed about wearing i used to call it the purple bubble dress uh when she meets nikki arnstein and he comes in there in the alley at henry street and she's got the purple dress on with the the boobly balls right on it yeah i've always wanted that and then um, when she uh, when she sees Nick the second time when he comes to the train station to meet Elsie the horse, and she's in that brown suit with the brown hat, it kind of looks like a mushroom hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I found out from Bonnie today, the hat that Barbara's wearing on the tugboat, a friend of hers bought at an auction. Oh, really? Her friend has that fur hat, and Bonnie has said, when you die, I get it. At least let me have it for a little time. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> actually has a, con, uh, a connection to not only the movie, but directly to Barbara's head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I the, the, musical, the musical quality of this, too, um, just brings something really special to uh, the huge thrust of emotion going on here. And when it comes to the kind of filmmaking that produced movies like this with um, enormous studios putting tons of uh, tons of money into into these projects and um, kind of just letting it be shaped by like the larger culture instead of a you know specific like curated vision in some ways it's kind of a little bit like Redbird Christmas that way in that it isn't um, sort of like this extremely like post-textual like academic kind of uh, idiosyncratic project but is really just um a lot of the 
cultural subconscious, like, arriving at, at one moment and manifesting in Barbara Streisand here. Well said. Yep, it <laughs> it really is. It's 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 so usually historical fiction stuff bugs me because I want to know what's true and what's not. I'll love a good story, but like Girl with a Pearl Earring, can't read that book because it's total fiction. It has, I mean, it is absolutely, nobody knows anything about that Vermeer painting. They have no idea who that was. If I read historical fiction, I like in the back of the book for the author to say, oh, by the way, here's what was real and here's what I made up. Jane Kirkpatrick does that when she writes about these amazing women in uh, the American West. Um, the book Loving Frank about uh, the architect, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, great historical novel in the back she says by the way this is what i made up and this is what was real mm -hmm. so for me that that is always kind of a a balance of whether it bugs me or whether i'm okay with it and funny girl just stood on its own as a movie so much and i was so swept away by it and still am that i don't care I know the difference, yeah. but I don't care because actually she is probably more like Fanny Bryce as she portrays her in the movie. If you take out the dates and time frames of <clears throat> things, like she lived with Nick Arnstein for six years before they got married. Right. And, but the, you know, the script was written only 13 years after Fanny died. Ray Stark, the yeah. producer, was her son in law. 13 years after Fanny died is when this was made. I know. It's incredible. I mean, I was thinking about um, how this like represents like history as well. And I totally agree that because this movie is just so narratively perfect and kind of just uses the threads that were present in her life, that it, it doesn't matter how much of it is, is real or not. Because uh, it's just such a, a fantasy of... Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it, it's just such a, a fantasy of the... Of, these um, incredible urges of humanity to like create yourself on, on the stage and like really um, experience like the, the most sweeping emotions and, and love and um, her relationship with Nick in this is just one of the, the greatest cinematic romances I've ever seen. It, it so is, isn't it the height of nonchalance furnishing a bed in restaurants? <laughs> but you know the funny thing is is that actually omar sharif was a lot like nick arnstein um in that um omar sharif uh was associated with racehorses for most of his life he he had them he was a professional gambler he actually played contract bridge professionally and mm -hmm. made most of his living on it and actually had some of the highest stakes bridge games ever so he didn't go to jail and he didn't do illegal stuff, but it was kind of interesting to me to realize that. But did you know that Omar Sharif actually had degrees in physics and mathematics? Well, he's just really fascinating. And his presence in the movie is, I mean, he looks just stunning from oh. the second he appears to the very end of the movie. Um, I just, I can't imagine um a better choice in casting and the same works for Barbara Streisand as well, because she kind of seems to be taking a lot of her own personality and, and channeling it through Fanny. Whereas like, um, 
I think that Omar Sharif is doing the same uh, through Nick. And to see people kind of do that instead of uh, do this really trained, like, uh, actorly kind of um, study and just uh, let their wills kind of uh, sink through the, the characters makes them so incredibly human and signifiers of something even greater. Well, and it's kind of interesting because actually Barbara Streisand and Fanny Bryce's lives were quite similar. I mean, Fanny had an amazing voice, but she was a, a comedian. And Streisand did the same thing. She started doing open mics and the way her hook was, was she was funny and Jewish, but then she had this voice. So kind of interesting parallels. And, and you probably know, but Shirley MacLaine was who the studio first wanted for the part. And she right. and Barbara Streisand are actually good friends. And they were both like, you know, whatever. But um, I've seen, you know, Shirley MacLaine is so spectacular in so many things, but oh my gosh, I'm it would not it would never have stuck the way that it stuck with Streisand. It was it was absolutely all the planets aligned. The casting was brilliant. Yeah, and I mean, you can tell from, I mean, the, the, her very first line, of course, Hello Gorgeous, which has been uh, repeated endlessly throughout culture now. But uh, when she does her first number, if a girl isn't pretty, um, you can tell immediately that she ha- is just on a completely different level of of channeling like these great uh, human emotions into, into her performance because she's both funny and beautiful and relatable and even though like the movie is kind of like making the joke that she's not the most like conventional beauty of all time. I mean, that's, that's really the thrust of a lot of the film. Nonetheless, there's something so powerful about her uh, commitment to the performance that she does become so transfixing and and beautiful in a way more um, transfixing way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, everything about it, the costuming, the cinematography, but um, I'm, I've never looked before because I kind of forgot about that. I knew it had been a stage production, of course, and she had been starring in it. But I didn't realize that there were like eight songs that are in the Broadway show that aren't in the movie. And so now I want to dig around and see if I can find a copy of the stage production. Oh, I'm sure you can. Um, and actually, the, the movie does a lot of liberties with the original um, with the original yeah. book for the musical. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Initially, it had been imagined as a film and then was turned into a stage musical um, initially, and, and uh, it kind of uh, ended up reiterating itself in its original form. But what always really surprised me was that the closing number, My Man, is not in the musical. Oh, it isn't. I didn't realize that. No, it's for the movie. But it was a trademark Fanny Bryce song. Oh, is that? I didn't know that. Yep. That actually was one of her most famous numbers was My Man. Yep. Wow. Yep. I had no idea. I thought that, that I thought it was a... hand Rose. Those are real Fanny Bryce songs and the uh, uh, the Bride, I think, and the Swan. Those are all actual Fanny. Oh, my gosh. Is that not the best scene ever? The Swan. Oh, it's what? wonderful. Do you want to shoot the swans? What? These lovelies. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Yeah, it, I just I just read it. Fanny Bryce did. Uh, she did originate this song. Who would, I thought it was made for this movie specifically because when that number starts and she's alone on the black stage with those three lights um, and just the most beautiful makeup, doing that song with the whole of her spirit, I just was moved to tears. 
And did you know that Omar Sharif stayed on set that day when he wasn't shooting so he could be there for her as emotional focus point? Really? Yep. Their scene in the dressing room wasn't shot at the same time. Uh, and the day that they did My Man was just a day that was just going to be her. And he came on set so that she would have a focal point. Wow. I mean, it's that scene is just unlike anything else. I was just enraptured watch, watching her just emote like no other and I kept listening to the song um endlessly like back and back and back and over and over again like when I was like walking to the club last night and everything it it really gives so much power it, it, I, I don't it, it's magic really it, it it's a magical movie no, it really is. Um, and I, it really touches me that this was the one of the first uh, movies you ever loved and was the first thing that you went and saw by yourself and uh, has, uh, has remained with you all this time. You know, there's just um, the things that hook themselves into our hearts. Sometimes you can intellectualize them, you can prioritize them, you can define them. And then sometimes they just are. They just they just are that for you. And that's what this movie was. I can, I can analyze why I love it, uh, but in the end it comes down to, it just enchanted me and fascinated me. And if you're enchanted and fascinated, those things don't generally wear off. Absolutely, when, when something really does um reach into your heart and sit with you forever then i mean that that becomes a part of your your spirit and a part of your philosophy for the rest of your life and when you truly love something you truly let art you know touch your spirit then uh, it becomes a part of you and you carry it on through the the human tradition and i mean the way that this movie has impacted your life and your worldview has, you know, of course, ensuingly become a part of mine just by the nature of you raising me. Mm-hmm. But it's it's so wonderful that we can share so many things artistically, and yet we can respect the pieces of each other's artistic heart leanings that we don't agree on or that are different for us, that, that you can have some things that you absolutely are that powerful for you that aren't for me, but I can respect them. And yet there's so many places where they overlap. I mean, you know, someone, someone who knows you um, as, as an intellectual uh, English major uh, with with books that can barely be pronounced, much less defined, um, might be surprised to know that you love Redbird Christmas. But that's those overlapping circles of, you know, the links and the, the the way the DNA chain twists. If those pieces are all there, it's just what view you have of them is from what angle you're looking at them. And then sometimes there are just things that just fit. It's like, oh, it's a marshmallow. I love marshmallows. You don't have to go any further in explaining except, oh, I love marshmallows. You love marshmallows? Cool. We love Redbird Christmas. Yeah, we love Redbird Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, this is precisely the the kind of uh, focus of my show. I mean, like, what, two episodes ago, I was talking about, um, like, Rhinestone with Dolly Parton and Sylvester Stallone, which is, like, by no means, like a like, a perfect film or anything. It's, you know, not some artistic accomplishment, but when something, you know 
speaks with you, then that that's what what's important. And when it comes to engaging with art, I think for anyone, especially in in my generation, there is an endless urge to critique and understand and overanalyze. Um, whereas, truly, the best way to engage with any art that's ever made is just to open your heart to it and see if it uh, moves you in some way. Mm-hmm. And that is what art is. It's about being moved and whether it means happy, sad, whatever point on the compass that needle goes to, um, that's that's what art is. And you don't even have to like it, but real art moves you in some way. No, absolutely. And I make that point all the time. I, I'm always overjoyed when something moves me in a in an abject way. And like, I'm like horrified or disgusted and get like that, uh, that rush of feeling. But there is definitely something to be said for something like Funny Girl and Redbird Christmas even as well, where it's like, um, the way that it has, uh, you know, shifted me and like really seized me is, um, it's not cruel at all. It, it's not abject or, you know, indicative of human rot. It, it really is just this beautiful will to power in both of them. Yes. Beautiful words. What is it? All the right words in all the right order. Yeah, very that. <laughs> oh, I wonder if I should cut it there. I think I will. Okay. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about the movie, Mom? I feel real good about what we've been talking about. I I have no burning need to add anything. I'm perfectly happy to be here. (laughs) I'm just, uh, I'm just glad that we got to, um, you know, spend a nice, uh, almost two hours here together, just um, sitting and chatting. It's the the closest thing we could get to a, a Christmas, I suppose. It really is. It really is. Sitting around talking about books and movies. Uh, with the fire going and Christmas around us, um, it's a it's a wonderful evening. It's it feels a little bit like you were here. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that, Mom. <laughs>